to me, what's so great about that story is it started back in the in the mid 70s. It was actually first started. The first pound was sold in 1978. But of course, it took a couple of years of, of planning and, and innovating before that first pound was was sold. And I always I always reflect back on that time. It was a time when I mean, Angus were not popular. Candidly, Angus were losing market share at a pretty significant rate. The grading standards were being lowered to match the continental influence that was coming in. And, and it was a time where the industry was saying, we need to go lean. Um, and the Angus breeders were saying, hey, marbling seems to be really, really important to the consumer eating satisfaction. Let's, let's build a brand and a set of specifications around that. And then ultimately, that'll drive demand for our cattle that genetically do that really well. Right. And so that, that was really the, the whole genesis. Let's focus on the consumer, which in the mid 70s, that's probably not what a lot of cattlemen were talking about right it was um, we were still pretty commodity commodity in our mindset not probably thinking that way and and I think over time by really setting a standard of quality and and then staying very consistent to that standard of quality over time you know we always joke that certified Angus beef is the overnight success that took 30 years to build because <laughs> those first few first couple decades candidly were were tough and I think ten, people tend to forget that. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. High D from DSM Firmanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. High D from DSM Firmanish can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash hy-d to learn more. Welcome to another episode of the Beep Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today. He is the CEO at American Angus Association. Mark McCulley brings nearly 27 years of experience with Certified Angus Beef to the table, most recently serving as Vice President of Production for Certified Angus Beef. In his role, he drove supply chain innovation for the brand while leading sustainability efforts, global production initiatives, and streamlining processes for improved product quality. So we're excited to have Mark with us here today. It's great to be here today. All right. Well, we always kind of start off with kind of this initial question of, How'd you get here? What's kind of your origin story when we think about how you found yourself in this position in the beef industry? Yeah, it's, you know, I'm an Illinois farm kid, grew up a small family uh, farm, uh, pretty, uh, pretty typical um, uh, of a, of a small, you know, we, my, my folks raised four kids on, on a handful of, handful of acres, uh, in a, in a pretty diversified little, little farm there in central Illinois. I actually grew up with pulled Hereford cattle. I, I always say I'm, I'm, uh, I was Hereford by birth and Angus by choice is how I've, how I've gotten over on the Angus side of things since, gosh, us in the cattle industry, we so identify ourselves with breed, right? You know, but, uh, no, so I grew up, um, grew up, and just love the cattle, you know, love the cattle was very involved with FFA and such, but um, uh, loved, loved the cattle and always wanted to pursue a career in that field. Didn't know exactly what that meant. Went to school for an animal science degree, uh, was very involved in livestock judging teams and and probably like a lot of folks or went to school thinking, well, maybe I'd be a vet and then maybe I'd get a get a, a degree and maybe stay in an academia and teach. And all those things uh, sounded appealing. But um, uh, ultimately, I found myself in a uh, an opportunity. I was working. I left. Um, uh, I got to work um, uh, just an incredible faculty at Michigan State University that I got to work with. Um, and uh, we have a we have a I think, uh, Stephanie, a, a, a shared mentor and Dr. Maynard Hoberg uh, was the 
department chair there. Um, I always said I was probably one of his bigger disappointments. I, I, uh, I, he, I was a grad, I was in doing my undergraduate at Western Illinois and I won the national Barra show. And I remember Maynard coming up to me, I'd applied and we had talked about coming to grad school and he put his arm around me. And I think he was so excited to, that I was coming to Michigan state. And then I think he was very disappointed. I really wasn't a hog guy. I was, I was a cattle guy. I just had a really lucky day at, in uh, Austin, Minnesota, but no, it was a wonderful time at Michigan State and then went to work for a few years for an ag marketing cooperative that was building this beef improvement program, um, kind of a supply chain for a branded beef program, which led me to some of my friends who were working at Certified Angus Beef, and that turned to a job interview, and uh, uh, I stayed there for, for 20, 20 years, and then uh, opportunity to come to St. Joseph to um, uh, into the role that I'm in now with uh, the parent company, the American Angus Association. Well, I have to tell my own Maynard story since I happen to be in my office today, which usually I'm recording this from my home and not in my very messy office at school. But I have this sticky note that I keep on my uh, cabinet here, and it says, hire someone smarter than you and clear the way for them. And that's a direct quote that Maynard told me very Very early in my program. I think he was trying to say that I was smarter than him. I think we all know that's not true if you know Maynard. But I I really like that philosophy, right? I think if you hire somebody that's smarter than you and just spend your time clearing the hurdles, like gosh only knows where they can go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think he got that as well as, as any, uh, in his roles as department chair, both Michigan State and Iowa State. I mean, I look at the the teams he put together there and, and uh, just a wonderful leader, a wonderful administer, uh, administrator and, and uh, all around great guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you hit on some um, various things there. I love the idea that, well, I don't know if I love the idea, but I agree with the idea that we definitely identify ourselves by breed, right? Even I, as an academic advisor, I'll, I'll get a lot of the beef students that'll come in and, and, you know, what's one of the first things that comes out of your mouth? Oh, what do you run? What do you raise? You know, yeah. and it's like, oh, they say Simital or they say Angus or they say crosses or something. And, you know, you kind of categorize them. So, my grandparents originally started with horned Herefords in Northwest mm-hmm. Iowa, and then they raised limousine, which is kind of what I was exposed to as a kid growing up, got involved in the Junior Limousine Association. And then now, I don't know if this is full circle or not, but I just have a few Angus cows that I would run now. So Very good. Yeah. You know, I always think it's something that's kind of unique to to cattle. I don't know that I hear, you know, folks that are in the swine industries identify or themselves with a breed or, you know, in the chicken industry or or maybe the dairy industry. I don't know. I do think it's a little bit of something with unique to, to cattlemen and cattle producers. And there is there is a strong allegiance and loyalty to to a breed. I think that's that's a really neat thing. Maybe at times it holds us back, too. Well, and if there's an organization that's done a good job of identifying the brand, it would be American Angus, right? So, you know, literally having the CAB brand and Angus kind of being synonymous or more than kind of being synonymous with high quality grade cattle and high marbling. Um, uh, Actually, let's start there since you have that history to go back. Like, what was it like being, you know, kind of a part of that development and, and, you know, the fact that that is something that is such a recognizable, it's almost probably one of the most recognizable things of our U.S. beef industry. It's a story I love to tell. It's a story I feel so privileged to have been a a, a small part of. Um, I got to be there for 20 years of um, just celebrated 45 years uh, this year that the Certified Angus Beef brand has been in existence. And and I think what's to me what's so great about that story is it started back in the in the mid 70s. It was actually first started the first pound was sold in 1978. But of course, it took a couple years of of planning and, and innovating before that first pound was was sold. And I always, I always reflect back on that time. It was a time when, I mean, Angus were not popular. Candidly, Angus were losing market share at a pretty significant rate. The grading standards were being lowered to match the continental influence that was coming in. And, and it was a time where the industry was saying, we need to go lean. Um, and the Angus breeders were saying, hey, marbling seems to be really, really important to the consumer eating satisfaction. Let's, let's build a brand and a set of specifications around that. And then ultimately, that'll drive demand for our cattle that genetically do that really well. Right. And so that, that was really the, the whole genesis. Let's focus on the consumer, which in the mid 70s, that's probably not what a lot of cattlemen were talking 
talking about, right? It was, um, we were still pretty commodity, commodity in our mindset, not probably thinking that way. And, and I think over time, by really setting a standard of quality, and, and then staying very consistent to that standard of quality over time. You know, we always joke that certified Angus beef is the overnight success that took 30 years to build because <laughs> those first few, first couple decades, candidly, were, were tough. And I think te- people tend to forget that. I mean, there's a, a very, um, um, historical vote that took place in the early 80s that was eight to seven to keep the certified Angus beef program. And it was one vote from um, after five years in existence, it was one vote from being discontinued. But it was uh, and again, it was a time when the association was things were things were tough and they were having to make decisions around resources Fortunately, the next set of board meetings, um, the, the program was breaking even. It was bringing in as more revenue than it was putting out. And, and then it, it took off from there. And, and uh, I don't know there was any, any following votes around, uh, around getting rid of it. But, um, uh, you know, so I think over time, you know, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't a slick ad campaign. It, it was consistency. It was, it was a standard of quality. It was about focusing on the consumer. It was about staying consistent with that drumbeat for for time, uh, for year after year after year to where finally, you know, Angus is a brand that's recognized by consumers around the world. I think that's so fascinating. And so my challenge to you or my question here is going to be, how do you think we could get the beef industry in the U.S. as a whole to try to embrace that same type of mindset. You know, I was speaking at a Montana nutrition conference last week, and I kind of jokingly said, the biggest strength and the biggest weakness of the beef industry is the same thing. And it's Mm -hmm. our independence, right? Mm -hmm. We're a lot more resilient to some of the things than the monogastric guys are because we don't have all the vertical integration. But we are a heck of a lot more susceptible to the sniping of consumers or a small minority really trying to push changes on, on the rest of it. But we're such a diverse group. How do we get that group to speak with one voice to build the U.S. beef brand the same way that CAB did? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that, that is so hard. Um, yeah, I mean, and I laugh because we literally just came off our, our convention um, here, uh, our Angus convention, and, and these were some of the discussions we're, we're having with with our members. How do we how do we continue to stay relevant? That's the word we we like to really make sure we're 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 being focused on in a time where there's structural changes going on in our industry, where there is a, uh, a need for a better connection of the, the story. I get a little tired of the, we ought to tell our story mantra, but it, it's true, right? We have to, we have to make sure we build trust and maintain. I think we have trust with the consumer. I really do. I think the vast majority of consumers really do trust farmers and ranchers. There's a lot of misinformation out there, of course, and we need to make sure that that, that misinformation doesn't ever find um, uh, drown out the the truth. And so we do have to get a little bit more organized and a little bit more coordinated. And, you know, I've heard it say we've got to have to give up a little of that independence to stay relevant for over the, the long haul or risk maybe giving it up altogether. Right. And and I know that gets to be a really touchy subject and, and a sensitive one. And I, I totally get it. I tend to believe, and it's probably one of my beliefs of, and passions around being a part of this um, association. I think it's one of the, the roles of breed association, at least for our Angus breeders, is that we can come together and, and those independent breeders can have access to data, can have access to tools and services and programs things they couldn't have if they were out there independently, but as a part of an association that's collectively in an aggregate working on their behalf. Um, I think that's, I always say, a strong association is a hedge against vertical integration and losing that that independence. But um, we, there has to be a mindset shift at times. We, we can't just be you know, the romantic cowboy out here that's that's 100 percent independent answers to no one. I'm not saying you can't. You can. I just think in time, the marketplace is going to send a stronger discount or a stronger signal along the way that says, no, we we want a little more information with that. We you can't be totally anonymous out here as a producer of our food. Um, and, and therefore, you're either not going to get the same price that others are, or you're at some point, maybe you do lose access to a market. And that's a really, really hard reality that I don't like. But um, I do think that is, um, you know, some of some of our um, some of our future. Um, I think we got to do a better job of getting together. We, we spend too much time in our industry 
fighting each other on little things. I mean, we agree on like 96% of the stuff out there. We, we, we as beef producers and the associations, we've got to do a better job of coming together, take, put setting aside the few things we've, you know, our different associations don't agree on, set those to the side and let's align on, 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 on the rest of the stuff, which is a far bigger pile than the few things that we disagree on. But there again, that's, that's hard, easy to say, and, and always a little bit tougher to do. Well, I think the more um, times that we have leadership within the associations and across the you know universities, across the Packers, across all the places that can have influence in the beef industry, the, the more folks that we can get in those positions who are open to the idea that we need to have at least some concerted voice, um, right, to, so, so that we can speak with that united front for beef, I think, I think that's helpful. I do. And we've got such just such great leaders, uh, producers that are willing to step up and give their time, whether it's at a county level, a state level, a national level. And, and we need that. I mean, we need uh, that's um, um, that's that's where that's you know, we talk about true grassroots, making sure that we is as, whether it's our association, other other associations, make sure we're truly looking out for the, the members and the best interests of what they need, what their barriers are for being successful. And and I'm always so thankful we've got a, a great board of directors. I know others, uh, other associations do as well. And, and we're really fortunate for, for folks willing to step up. Um, I, I ended my presentation um, uh, with uh, to address to our to our delegation there on Monday with a quote that says the future is created by those that show up. And um, um, I, I truly believe that. And I, I thank them for showing up. I know. Sometimes I told my students that in my 8 a.m. class. That's <laughs> <laughs> harder to remember when it's an 8 a.m. college class. I agree. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I'm there to remind them. Don't worry. Yeah, good. I bet you do. <laughs> so I, like I said, I was in Montana last week and they had a producer panel talk. And, and what struck me was really the fact that they have all come up with very innovative ways to drive their Sometimes profitability, sometimes survivability, right? Let's put it frankly. Some of them were trying to keep the family ranch in the in the family. Um, and so innovation was your theme this year at the Angus Convention, which, like you said, you just wrapped up. So tell our audience a little bit about what that convention is made of, kind of what are your, um, what are your goals going into that, and, and just give us a little more information on that. Yeah. Yeah, so so every year we have a um, an Angus, our, we call it our National Angus Convention and Trade Show. Uh, we do um, uh, bring together producers from all over the country. Actually, we had uh, eight countries represented there, so we were a, a global event. We held it down in Orlando, Florida this year, which was by far the furthest east we had ever hosted um, uh, an event. And uh, so actually prior to the convention itself, we had some pre-tours. So some folks went out to some of the, the large ranches there in, in Florida. Deseret and Kempfers and some others. Um, we've uh, and then some other folks took took advantage of all of the great um, uh, sites and, and and things to do in in Florida around Disney or NASA and such. Um, and then we got into the meeting. We had a, a with some a couple days of uh, lots of educational sessions, speakers, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, we, we we tried to really lean into this idea of innovation and and what does that look like and and the one celebrating the innovation and the innovators we've had in our our breed um, uh, for our 150 year history of the Angus breed being in the United States, um, 140 year history of of the association and 45 year history. We had all these anniversaries this year of certified Angus beef, celebrating those innovators, and then and then really thinking about what are those those innovations that are that are that are coming our way either here today or probably for in the foreseeable future and I talked about disruptive innovation and and things like artificial intelligence and and the thing the space of gen- genomics and and gene editing um, there's just there's all sorts of things in that um, uh, in that in that in that technology space that will I believe accelerate innova- innovation and and so we spent a lot of time talking about that uh, one how do we deal with that as a breed association how do we embrace it how do we educate on it um, and uh, uh, and and so that was that was a lot of fun um, and then uh, we we end uh, we have a we have an evening banquet where we give some some awards and r- recognize some folks that are you know hundred year in the business uh, some 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 uh, some some significant folks that have made significant contributions. And then uh, the last day is actually our annual convention of delegates where we do the business of the association. 
And that is uh, where we elect board members and and uh, uh, again governance things. This this year it was a it was a, a fairly quick meeting, but uh, but uh, important nonetheless. So we were talking before we started recording that this is sort of the end of your fiscal year, beginning of the next fiscal year, kind of doing some of this year in review kind of thinking. So having come just off of the convention, Mark, what are your thoughts on you know what's the thing that you're most proud of the association doing in the last year? Yeah, we've we've had a number of successes. We're sure, you know, we're a little bit of a unique organization that we have the the parent company of the American Angus Association. That is that is the the the, the typical, if you would, the the breed registry. But under that umbrella of the American Angus Association, we technically have four wholly owned subsidiaries. One of those is Certified Angus Beef, which is our branded beef company that's been around since 1978. We have another subsidiary called Angus Productions Incorporated or Angus Media. That's our, we, we publish two print publications in the Angus Journal and the Angus Beef Bulletin. We also have a sale book um, a service that we provide for our breeders that uh, we produce around 500 uh, online sale books uh, every year for breeders. We've t- tremendous growth into the digital space um, with, um, um, you know, whether that's retargeting um, digital strategies for our, our breeders. Um, and um, uh, and we even started podcasts. We have two podcasts now that we were excited about and, and one I get to co-host called The Angus Conversation. That that's We love these podcasts. They've just been such a great way to, to connect with our members and, and have conversations about about really important and interesting things. Um, and then we've got um, two of our newer entities. One is called Angus Genetics Incorporated, or AGI, which is our, if you will, I think of them as kind of our innovation and research uh, entity. Uh, some really cool things going on in the genomic space there with uh, with our AGI. And then we have a foundation um, that is, uh, that's, we've just got such a generous um, uh, Angus base, and uh, they've supported that foundation, which gives us the ability to do so many cool things, uh, supporting youth and education. And, and research. So um, it's it's you, you ask about one thing, and I gave you like this whole organizational overview, right? But I I, I guess I'm 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 proud of the collective success that the organizations had in a in a year where. Uh, if you look at certified Angus beef, I mean, we're looking at, you know, for cattlemen, this is an exciting times, tight supply and high prices. When you're marketing a branded beef, premium branded beef company, tight supplies and high prices are, you know, put a whole lot of headwind into growth. And yet we still had the the, the third best year in the history of, of the program with over 1.2 billion pounds sold in 50 plus countries. So that's a tremendous success. The premiums on that product continue to get bigger. Um, we, we across our, we continue to have innovation. We, we love, you know, the fact we've been around for 140 years. We have a lot of things we do that's very traditional. We have a great heritage and yet we're still innovating and in the digital space for, um, um, you know, digital sale books and the, um, the things we can do there for our, our breeders. So I'm really proud of the innovation that we've driven over the last year. Um, and then I, I always say one of our, our biggest, um, uh, roles and responsibility as an association is to put tools in the toolbox of our of our breeders and members. And we're not here to tell them which tools to use. Our job is to build the best tools that um, that we can for them. And then they can d- decide the direction that they need to take their herd for their environment, for their customer, for their market. And we, we rolled out two new tools here this uh, kind of through this fall. One of them is specifically a tool. It's a new expected progeny difference or an EPD for for functional longevity, which helps predict a do- how long a daughter's um, a bull's daughters will stay in the herd, which we all know that's a really important uh, trait as it comes to profitability for our commercial producers. And then we also entered into what we're, we've called the World Angus Evaluation, which is a new uh, uh, partnership. Um, we've been doing this uh, with Canada for a while, but we just entered into this uh, uh, joint uh, relationship with Australia Angus and, uh, and basically putting pooling all of our data together to build one genetic evaluation for registered Angus cattle across all three countries. And that's a really big deal. Uh, we're really excited about that. It's been about two years in the making and, and to finally uh, take it across the finish line in October was uh, was a nice way to uh, uh, technically it was outside the fiscal year, but it still feels like it was kind of in uh, here in 2023. It was one of those really, really, really great achievements that the team got done. So tell me a little bit more about the um, the World Angus evaluation, because when you think about or at least when I think about 
Canada and Australia, I automatically think about um, some very different production systems. I think about very different environments. Of course, in the U.S., we have very diverse environments from um, East Coast to West Coast. But I'm curious, is there going to be like a uh, environment kind of component that you are going to be able to pull out of that as you start to, to look at that information? Yeah. It, and it's, uh, you know, um, it's probably one of the things that's most appealing to one in, in this day and age um, in the genetic evaluation space. It's it's so much we use genomics, but the genomics are only as good as the phenotypic database, right? The actual records and the measures that are behind that. And so continuing to build that and make the most robust phenotypic database is so critical. And And so the more environments that we can represent in that genetic evaluation, the stronger uh, we make we make those genetic prediction tools. And so, while while those environments are are different, um, and we do make some adjustments, not so much Canada to U.S. but U.S. to Australia, they you know we typically think of a weaning wait as 205 days. Well, they do kind of a 400 and a 600 day wait. So there are some things we just we had to kind of um, uh, we had to do some uh, some calibration and make sure that you know we did. Some some conversions, I guess, of, of those things. But in actual fact, their environments aren't all that different. I mean, they run in some very arid areas, but but so do we here in the, in the U.S. And so um, it, it's actually, um, you know, a lot of that gets worked out in the contemporary group that a, that, a set of gr- that a set of animals are raised in. And so you really get, you're still looking at the genetic differences within that, and therefore the environmental effect somewhat gets gets taken out. But it um, it's, it's a great way for for us to, to, again, bring more phenotypes in um, and and test some of these cattle in different environments. And we may find over time that, you know, there is kind of a new, I say new area, the geneticists on the mic listening to this will go, this isn't terribly new, but kind of an an environment by genetic uh, interaction that we haven't probably totally figured out today. And um, this may, by by having a little more diversity in our environment, this might help us uh, tease some of that out down the road. I wonder, too, um, when I think about finishing systems, that can be quite different between the U.S. and um, Australia. I'm thinking of in particular, right, the differences in what kind of technologies they use, um, maybe the lack of beta agonists. Um, but then also thinking they kind of have a very unique finishing system, right, with like 70 days on grain, whatever they mustered. You know, there might be a four-year-old Hereford in there and there might be a six-month-old Angus, right? Like yep. it, can, it can be a little bit more diverse. I'm curious as it comes to your goals there on kind of putting the terminal EPDs together. Is that is that a challenge? Um, a little bit, but there's actually some production systems in in place now uh, that that look a lot like what we would see here. Um, uh, they've, you know, they've as the uh, you know Australia is largely fed over time to, for that uh, Pacific Rim market, which is a high quality, high marbling market, and so they've adopted some of the some similar technologies or feeding strategies that we have here in the states. So there's some of that that has to be sorted out. Again, some of that that. Honestly, works itself out in contemporary groups. If a set of cattle are no different than if we, you know, compare two feedlots here, one that's um, maybe a farmer feeder type versus a, you know, a large scale commercial feeder with a steam flaker and feeding a bait agonist, we can use data from both of those programs. Um, and then we, the, again, the, the, the models take that, that, in, that environment or that, that, um, a contemporary group effect out of the, of the, of the evaluation, but it's, it's always a challenge. I mean, um, you know, even, you know, how they call, you know, some their grading system is, you know, just, it's not just simple metric to English conversions. We had to, you know, make sure that we're, uh, that we're comparing apples to apples for sure. That's important. You say that like it's simple to ever do the metric to English conversions anyway. (laughs) Well, I know we have lots of listeners in Australia. Actually, I've heard from a couple of them in the last couple of weeks. So uh, we'll say a shout out to all of our um, Australian listeners and our Canadian folks, too, listening to that. I'm sure they'll be excited to hear about this partnership. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we're super excited about it. We actually had some representatives from Australia and Canada both at, uh, at our convention, but uh, Australia is going to be hosting the World Angus Forum in 2025. And so they had some uh, delegates from their organization at our convention in Orlando and uh, uh, promoting that forum. It's going to be a great meeting down there and uh, we're looking forward to it. Excellent. Okay, well, I had a couple of notes here of things that I wanted to follow up, but um, this is maybe kind of out of left field, but this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. So what do you think would be the role for Angus in the cow herd expansion? 
because we know that the latest numbers would suggest we've got more heifers that have been uh, brought into the feedlot, which would be a strong indicator that cow herd expansion is maybe on hiatus for another year. That might make sense given some of the drought situation and other resources and the fact that these calves are worth a million bucks right off the yeah. cow. So what are your thoughts on, you know, in an ideal world, where do you think Angus fits in that cow herd expansion? You know, we, we just got some data back. We did a, a collaboration with Cattle Facts, which is a, a survey we called our Industry Insights. And, and what that said, we asked a lot of questions about a lot of things, but in particular, we asked about uh, genetic composition and, and um, of cow herds and bull batteries. And, and what we heard back was that of that, and that was a, a representative, we feel pretty good, it was a very representative sampling of the U.S. cow herd. It said we were, they were about 82% Angus, um, I should say, 82% of respondents said Angus was a primary breed, not uh, um, of their cow herd. 70% said Angus was a primary breed of their bull battery. The next closest on either one was like 24%. And so I say all that because I think today we are at a spot where Angus is being looked to to be both a um, a maternal solution, but then also a terminal solution. I think um, if you look at what's changed in the Angus breed over the last two decades in particular was an, ex- an accelerated selection for, for growth, efficiency, and carcass merit. Um, and I think with the tools and the size of database we have today, I think there's an opportunity. I talk about the job description that, that we need um, the, the genetics to fill today. It, it is still about we've got to have the cow that adapts to the environment we need to put her in and, uh, and, and, and get bred and bring in a big calf every year, right, um, and, and stick around for a long time That's, that's uh, and, and, you know, have other we, we used to call them convenience traits. I don't call them convenience traits anymore. Things like utter quality and, and disposition, those aren't convenience. I mean, you think about labor shortages anymore. I mean, no one has time to deal with problems, right? And so those things are foundational traits. You need that. But then also the marketplace is wanting an Angus-sired cattle, uh, Angus-sired calves. We asked also a group of the, the feeders in this survey, and it said that the, the, the number one thing they wanted was feeder cattle out of registered Angus-sires. And so and it's because Angus today is, is um, if you look at the USDA Meat Animal Research Center data, Angus is the, the high growth breed of all the breeds, surpassing the continentals. So our challenge is, as our association as breeders is to be able to, to maintain that balance. I always say we're, we're being asked to bring both maternal genetics and terminal strength to, to the equation. Fortunately, we have a really diverse group of breeders, some that are focusing on the maternal side, some that are focusing on the, those ter- more of those terminal side. We have a lot of folks that are, that are you know, balancing the two and, and kind of looking for some optimums. And so I, I think that's our role. I think our role is to make sure we're bringing the genetics uh, that commercial cattlemen need to, um, uh, to produce, put good productive females back in the herd, uh, but then also bring in, you know, I, I tend to believe our industry has moved from a, um, a, of an era where it's all about low cost production. I, I, I just, I just don't think, you know, we went for that, that mindset for decades and we lost market share, we lost demand. And, and, and candidly, there was no margin left in this business um, to share. And we were trying to just drive costs out. Now, I still think we've got to keep cost, you know, obvious. I'm not saying we can ignore cost. I just think our, we've moved to a, a, a val- more of a value-based market and a value-based industry where the, the value of the product out is, is it's worth more than what the cost of production is. And so it's trying to va- balance those, balance those input costs um, with, uh, with the, the, the check, right? The, the, the pounds um, and, you know, pounds of gold are worth more than pounds of lead, right? And so it's, it's trying to bring all of that. I guess we think that's our charge um, as, a, as an Angus breed is to be able to deliver those genetics that can, uh, can do all of those things and help the commercial producer make money while at the same time satisfy a consumer. As a feedlot nutritionist, every day I deal with the ramifications of the genetic selection of industries like American Angus over the last several decades, right? It's actually one of my favorite slides to have in my presentation. I'll show some of Jude Capper's uh, really nice review data where she shows that from 1977 to 2007, the animal in the U.S., the beef animal basically average daily gain increased by 44%. And so, of course, I'm interested in trace mineral nutrition and always asking this question of are our mineral 
and vitamin requirements the same as they were for the beast prior to today. Um, And we introduce technologies. And, you know, I always say there's there's three pillars to that. There's the genetic foundation that's heavily selected for growth. And Lord only knows what we selected along with that, right? Like we've likely selected not only for greater intakes to support that growth, but possibly even improved nutrient digestibility and absorption. So we have probably, you know, selected for some of that. He needs that to support the growth. We've got improved animal husbandry and housing and, you know, all kinds of things bedded buildings and we've got technologies like implants and beta agonists so it's a it's a pretty dang fun time to be a feedlot nutritionist from the you know perspective of you know how big can i get this calf keep him healthy and make the most efficient product to go out the door yeah well i think you touch on uh, some things that i think a lot about and i'll be honest i think it's it's kind of a next it's a pretty big conversation uh that i think we need to continue to have as an industry and that's understanding are there biolo- biological limits? I mean, are there some red lines here um, that that maybe we know about or starting to know about or don't know about yet that, I mean, at, at what point, um, you know, we've the, if you look at just the improvement we made in carcass weight um, over the last 30 years, I mean, it's 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 unbelievable. And 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 as a, you know, someone that represents a, a group of of animal breeders, um, I, I think I, I think genetics can take a lot of credit for that. But at some point, right, do we do we end up selecting an animal? What do we start compromising some things? Right. Is that animal? Is that is that health? Um, Is that you know, there's questions um, that that come up through all of this. And so I think to your to your point, probably doing a better job of saying of, of matching the genetics with the nutrition, with the marketing. I mean, in a commodity system, you take all of these calves, you put them in and you feed them all the same way. You kind of sort them on kind of some weight and sign them where you frame size. I just think we can do a whole lot better job today describing the, the, the genetic makeup of those cattle and then manage them accordingly. And I, I, I'm excited about that next, call that precision agriculture. I don't know what we want to call it. But I'm really excited about how that's going to unfold in the next couple of decades. And I, I think we need to make sure we don't, um, you know, we don't keep forcing some, you know, I always say that times we, we're building V8 and V10 engines in, in some of these cattle, but we're expecting them, uh, we're, we're not putting jet fuel in them. And, and, uh, and so let's, let's make sure we're matching the management and the genetics. And we've actually have a program today called Angus Link that, and it's got a genetic merit scorecard to it. And I, one of the reasons we're excited about that is I think it can help us do some of this. If we can characterize the genetic makeup of a set of feeder cattle on their grade potential, on their growth potential, maybe it helps us do a little better job of, of managing those cattle, whether it's the technology, whether whether it's 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 feed, whether days on feed, market, you know, the target that we're shooting for, um, and uh, but I think I think we'll learn a lot in the next uh, in the next couple decades about about the differences in these genetics, and and I think we'll all be better because of it. I think it's been really fascinating and been at Iowa State for 14 years now, and I would say that the vast majority of cattle that I've fed here have been high preponderance Angus genetics and part because we had Iowa premium just up the road for a while. Yep. That was the only thing yep. that they were going to take. Um, and uh, we have definitely had some times where we've had some big growthy yearlings who are eating 31, 32, 35 pounds of dry matter, right? Like big, big eaters, big gainers. Um, and historically, looking back now at some of those data sets, and we if we kind of put them in quartiles and look at the, the highest rate of gains and the lowest rate of gains, and in our shop, even the ra- lowest rate of gains is often industry par or better just because we have kind of a nice barn they eat well. Um, it's been very interesting to go back and say, you know, maybe those high growth calves have a different zinc requirement. Mm, yeah. Something to support protein synthesis, something, you know, to support um, marbling production. Maybe they have a different requirement for something else. So uh, I call that strategic supplementation, but I think it fits to your point of, you know, precision ag. And that's absolutely where this industry is going to need to go. If for no other reason, then we need to figure out a way to minimize discounts because in this business, we don't have room for them anymore. Absolutely. No, I think you're spot on. Okay. I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier. I think you were talking about the convention and you mentioned that um, AI, and this wouldn't be um, artificial. The other AI. Yeah, yeah, the other AI. (laughs) So um, generative AI, artificial intelligence. Uh, Give me Mark's thoughts first, before we talk about Angus, what are your kind of personal thoughts on on generative AI, yay, nay, excited. I'm pretty pro technology. I, I I think there's there's questions. Uh, obviously, 
philosophical, ethical, probably with all these, what I call a convergence of technology that we have today. And and I don't dismiss that. But um, in general, I tend to be very, um, I think the the benefits outweigh the the downside. And so, um, you know, I I find it pretty fascinating um, of, and and I think I started thinking about what the possibilities might be for agriculture. Um, You know, nothing else I think about, I I mentioned labor shortage. I mean, the, the labor issues we have, if we can, if we can get more efficient, I mean, production agriculture, we're, we're notorious about, you know, I don't want to say we don't always try to work smarter, but we definitely work harder. That's that we've got down. Right. And, and are there some, are there some solutions that, that AI could bring um, um, maybe in coupled with, you know, some of the advancements in sensor technologies and, and, and quantum computing and all these things that are all coming together. I think I think it's I think it's pretty fascinating, um, um, and I you know I I think I saw a slide one time, and it was a slide that said it had um, 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 useful on one side and creepy on the other side, and had a really fine line. And the point was, there's a fine line between creepy and useful, and I thought that was beautiful. And I I do think you know when when uh, my wife and I are talking about you know maybe we ought to get the gutters cleaned, and then all of a sudden. I've got nine advertisements for gutter guards on my Facebook. So yeah, okay, I don't like that. Uh, but <laughs> that is so real. That That's is so, so real. real. So real. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, um, yeah. No, I, I I tend to be. You ask my personal. I I tend to be pretty pro technology and and think the benefits outweigh the the downside. Okay. So now the Angus position. So you said you talked about it a little bit at the convention. I'm sure it's kind of a hot topic now. What do you think are things that generative AI are going to be, you know, causing some sort of radical changes and things like that? What are you thinking about? Well, I tell you where where we get probably most excited um, is on the the ability. I mentioned sensor technology and things, and and you know what kind of phenotypes could we collect. Uh, genetic evaluation is all about, I mean, we're in this genomic space, obviously in a huge way, but but genomics are only as good as the phenotypic data that are behind it, right? So we've got to be able to connect. Genomics just help us build these really great pedigrees, meaning we know exactly the shake of DNA you got from your paternal grandsire, but we got to know what your paternal grandsire was all about and, and to, to really make the predictions accurate. So, and I always say we've got the low-hanging fruit, you know, birth weight, weaning weight, you know, even disposition, some of that stuff, right? Those are, that's highly heritable, relatively easy stuff to measure. We got that pretty well figured out. We'll continue to work on that. But, but where we, where we don't have figured out, I mean, um, advancements in just, just animal disease and, and uh, potential for, um, you know, um, you know, even things like, you know, I talk about you know, what, what about an app that you can go out and at calving time and and it measures cow weight, body condition score, udder score, foot score, you know, maybe a disposition score if she's running you over the fence or something. But um, it measures the calf weight. Who knows what these things could could all be. Um, and then that data is just automatically uploaded um, into, you know, along with the temperature that uh, that calf uh, cow calved. I mean, I think about all of these incredible data points that could be collected and then the ability of AI to to make sense of it all. Right. And sort out um, across our population, across our database. And and so at the at the. Um, um, at the conference, I used an example. So I read this article about the, the cartoon, the Jetsons and the Jetsons, that cartoon that was that was that was uh, written in the it was produced in the late 60s. But go back and watch the Jetsons today. And I showed like eight different examples of things from the Jetsons cartoon. It was Zoom technology, uh, Zoom. Um, um, it was virtual workouts. It was telemedicine. It was Apple Watch. It was, you know, it was all of these technologies. And my point was not that the f- producers of Jetsons were like prophets or, or these incredible futuristic uh, visionaries. It was when we watched that. And I'm I'm I, I was born in 71. So I watched it as a per- so I probably watch more reruns. Right. But I remember watching it in the late 70s, early 80s, thinking that's crazy stuff. Right. That's that'll never happen. And I use that as an example of we can throw out some kind of wild examples of, of what we could potentially do with AI and technology. And it's really easy to dismiss some of it and go, that'll never happen. And, and I just say, well, 
let's let's not forget the Jetsons, right? And it, to me, it's a great a great way to remember that um, you know perspectives change, and uh, we need to stay really open minded around some of these possibilities. So, as you were talking there, Mark, I just totally pictured the smartwatch of somebody being linked to their phone that says, well, "I went out to check on cow number thirteen, and then all of a sudden my heart rate spiked because she was coming after me." <laughs> <laughs> so her docility score is not great. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now the watch is on the ground somewhere in a snowbank. So, yeah, we know that that didn't go well. Yeah. 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 We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think you tackle that with genomics, too. I mean, and because genomics, I talk about these convergence of technology. I, I think you throw genomics and AI and sensors and 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 um, and all this stuff tends to get together. And when and and, uh, you know, um, I, I just think. We're going to be able to, to probably describe cattle better. We're going to be able to communicate the, the, the genetic makeup of these animals across our supply chain more accurately, um, get feedback. I mean, we don't do a great job today of getting feedback from our end product um, all the way back into our to the genetic designers of this product, right? It's, we all know it's terribly segmented. And so what can blockchain and, and, and AI and all these technologies, when they come together, how can that help solve some of that disconnect that we have in our business? I, I think all these things are um, in, in some way, shape or form are going to are going to come to fruition over the next, I don't know, three, five, seven years. And, um, um, you know, facial recognition software. There was a really cool facial recognition um, um, vendor set up at our, um, you know, and they could tell the difference between uh, two twin black calves. Um, you know, what kind of what kind of cool data can that help us uh, collect and, and how much more accurate can our, our data uh, collection be? Especially in a feedlot pen full of black Angus calves. <laughs> Absolutely. Individual identification is hands down one of our biggest challenges when we try to look at video data. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you think about and I talk I keep bringing up labor, but I just I just truly believe it's it's one of our big challenges and going to be a big challenge. And I think it's going to drive innovation. Right. Um, and and we all know that, you know, the days of just having, you know, um, pen riders, whether it's in the in the in the in the feed yard, I mean, just labor, just the number of people per the, the, the labor per cattle ratio just continues to get strained. And but what if you had some sensors on every one of these on a pen or a drone that flow th- flew through and around the feed yard every day that was was able to, to drop down and put a spot of paint on one that, you know, was, you know, one standard deviation, whatever. I mean, right. There's just you just start thinking about all the cool things. And then and then, um, you know, um, you know, are there robots that go out in the pen and find those animals and try, who knows. Right. But uh, again, remember the Jetsons. Dan Thompson would say the robots going into the pen is not a great idea. Yeah. yeah <laughs> the calves don't like that. We've seen some of that at the packing plants, and I think they're trying, but uh, who, yeah, that, that one may be a ways off yet. Yeah. Absolutely. But I love the drones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's time for our famous three. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With beef and dairy agri-slat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. All right. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, Mark, but we've reached the end of our time together, and it's time for our famous three questions. Are you ready for these? Yes, yes. Okay. First question, what is uh, your favorite beef-related resource? I am trying not to give a commercial here um, of, of, of our Angus resources. Um, we did start one called Angus University that um, we're really proud of. And uh, um, I, I think we've worked hard to put some good stuff out there. Um, gosh, and I'll, I'll, I guess, you know, I, I, for me, some of the market data that's out there, I, I always think Cattle Facts just does such a, a great job. I, I, I want to give them a kudos. And they're, a, they're kind of a spot I go to uh, – uh, to uh, to keep track of, of what's going on in, in the marketplace. So that's a great resource for me. All right. That's a good one. That's the first time I've heard Cattle Facts, and I totally okay. would second that. 
Randy okay. Block, you need to send me a check for uh, the free advertisement you got here. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. My sister was actually at a meeting in Florida like two weeks ago and she sends me a picture and she's like, this is the only presentation this entire like three, na- three hours that I've understood. And it was a cattle fax one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was at like a rendering conference or something. So. Oh. <laughs> okay. Second question. Um, what is a, uh, what is something not related to beef that you are reading or consuming or enjoying right now? Um, not related to beef. My wife would say I don't do a lot that's not related to, to beef. Um, we, um, I just finished a book, um, and, and it's kind of tied to what we just got done talking about. It's called The Future is Faster Than You Think. Um, and it is about these, um, it was a, a refresh of all these converging technologies and some of these theories that I'd heard about earlier. So um, it's, uh, again, it, it does talk about agriculture. It does bring agriculture in a little bit, but it talks about a whole lot of other things, uh, uh, disruptive innovation in manufacturing um, and uh uh, lots of lots of other industries, so not directly related to beef, but that's about as far as far away as I get, maybe. Okay, all right. And third and final question: What is a trait of someone you know that you think has helped make them successful? That is uh, that is a great question. I you know some I look back at some of the people that I admire, and maybe it's a it's a characteristic. I wish I had a so so much more in myself, but um, the the discipline. To, to stick with an idea and to, and to stay true to something that they know is going to work and 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 overcome uh, you know the 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 failures overcome the criticisms um, you know I think about you know and I, I got I talk about the certified Angus beef story but you know a guy like Mick Colvin that he absolutely knew that this was going to work. And regardless of the, 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 the slow uptake and the naysayers and probably, you know, that was before Facebook. So in this day and age, the, the, the Facebook critics, right, um, uh, he stayed true to it. Just discipline, believed and, and, and um, um, just ten- tenacious, but, but so, but so um, had that discipline to not waver off what they knew and believed was absolutely what needed to be done or, or, or a, what a, a desired future state was and, and, and stuck to that. I can, I'll be honest, I can, you know, I've got something shiny disease some days and, and uh, can, can, go, uh, can go off on that. But I'm just, I look back at some folks that I truly believe are, are true pioneers um, to have that is, uh, is, is so admirable. I love that. Well, I'm right there with you. I have shiny object syndrome as well. (laughs) But I like to surround myself with people who have a lot of executing talent so they can take the crazy ideas and run with them or come back really quickly and be like, this is not going to (laughs) work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mark, it's been really great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us. I've enjoyed it and love to come back anytime. You guys do a great job and, and thanks for having me. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.